0: Well, yeah. Let's uh, let's ruin this conversation and talk about taxes.
1: Perfect. Perfect. What a good segue. The taxation <laughs> of life insurance, which is completely unique. It's really why. It's really the only reason that life insurance makes economic sense. <laughs>
0: Episode seven of the Wealth and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Nelson, and I am joined as usual by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you?
2: I'm good. I'm good. I'm surprised you just keep bringing me back every time though. I just, I thought at one point you'd give me the boot or something.
0: You're surprised. I'm surprised that you keep agreeing to come back. (laughs) Well, I think we, I think we have a problem here. Of miscommunication.
2: <laughs> well, you know, in the, the world of self quarantine, there's not much we can do anymore. I've uh, got plenty of time on my hands.
0: Look, I'll take it. If the only reason that you're doing this because you have extra time and you're really bored, I'll take it. That's <laughs> fine by me. How, you, how are you guys doing otherwise?
2: We're doing really well. We, um, we have planted a garden at the beginning of spring. Mm-hmm. And so it's pretty much been my home project to take care of it. And now I'm starting to harvest it. Nice. So we're, we're gonna be pretty self-sufficient pretty soon.
0: But what kind of stuff are you harvesting here?
2: I've got lettuce. I've got radishes. I've got three different types of tomatoes, and pretty soon I'm gonna have some jalapenos, and we're gonna make a lot of jalapeno
0: poppers, nice. and pretty
2: much a salsa. We're gonna make lots of salsa.
0: Love it. Very nice. And See how I, are you holding up? Uh, we're doing well. Although we don't have we don't have uh, ingredients to make salsa right now, <laughs> and we had tostadas today. Oh but we didn't have salsa. We like, we make like homemade salsa.
2: Mm.
0: I'm a, I'm a little bit particular about the kind of salsa that I will eat. Cause I grew up on the border. So I have like this very particular taste. For <laughs> like what to me qualifies as actual salsa. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult for me, although I still like tostadas. we so we make some pretty good ones, but like, it's still difficult for me without salsa to do it. And, yeah, absolutely. But there, There is a connection here. So when I make the salsa, I like to make it very hot. I like to add an extra jalapeno or two. Nobody else in my family likes it hot. I've learned that I just have to moderate myself in order to do something for the good of the group. <laughs> Even though in my mind, I'm ruining it because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no one else views it that way. So I just have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah
2: just sounds like you just got to make more than one batch, right? Just
0: extra Uh,
2: amounts of salsa. Yeah. That's never a problem.
0: No, that's not a problem at all. Well, today we are talking about life insurance and uh, probably talking about life insurance in more depth than is reasonable or necessary, but we're lawyers, so we're willing to do that, I think. And there's no better person to do that with than our guest today. Kevin McMahon. Kevin is a partner at WealthPoint. He is about as well credentialed as far as I'm aware in the life insurance community as you can be holding CLU and CHFC designations. And Kevin, it is our pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for joining us.
1: Brent, Rachel. Rachel. Thank you very much for the opportunity to visit with you both today. My objective is to try and make life insurance more understandable and explain how and why life insurance makes sense in many financial situations, and in particular as a funding vehicle for estate tax liabilities. I believe the life insurance industry suffers from a fairly well-deserved bad reputation for not having been more transparent or consumer-friendly, and I hope to clarify some of those resultant misperceptions. The industry has consistently adjusted over the years to changes in mortality and interest rates. If we have time later, it might be interesting to touch on how the industry is currently reacting to COVID-19. Unlike most other financial services, the life insurance industry is regulated on a state-by-state basis, and that is run by the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. Dodd-Frank did create a federal office of insurance, but it has really been uh, inoperable since its creation. So the driving force between regulation and guidance of the insurance industry continues to be the state insurance commissioners. Of late, and by that I mean the last five years, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners have become much more active, especially in its role as a consumer advocate. And that's been a very positive development for the life insurance industry, particularly in dealing with a relatively new product called Indexed Universal Life, or IUL, and IUL Illustration Guidelines. And we can delve into those issues in greater depth as we continue our conversation. First, I'd like to take just a few minutes to tell you about myself and my company, WealthPoint. I entered the life insurance industry after college in 1976, where I majored in finance and accounting. My practice evolved into a large employee benefit consultancy, where I also ran the individual life practice. I sold that company to my partners in 2010 and attempted retirement, but fortunately or unfortunately, I failed retirement miserably. So in 2012, I decided to re-enter the insurance business, but focused strictly on the high-end estate planning and corporate life insurance markets. By 2016, I had grown my practice to the point that I needed to either make a large investment in infrastructure and personnel or make an affiliation with a national firm with its attendant resources focused on the same markets. After quite an exhaustive search, I decided to join WealthPoint, which is headquartered in Phoenix, but has offices in Denver, and I run that office, San Diego and Los Angeles. WealthPoint currently has about 30 employees and is one of the largest and most respected life insurance consulting firms in the country. Although I run our Denver office, I've been fortunate to have a home in Tubac for the last 15 years and have had the pleasure Beginning to know Brent professionally during that time. We're lucky to have you. Well, thank you. This is an admiration
0: society. Thank you for uh, thank you for moving down.
1: (laughs) Well, on days like today, it's 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 me that should be thanking all of you. I think. This is an interloper. Any comments or questions on what I've had to say so far? Can you
0: can you give me just a little? And this is maybe more for my benefit than anybody else. But can you give me a little bit of kind of background of like where did wealth come? Where did WealthPoint kind of come from? And then how did they attract you initially?
1: Sure. WealthPoint was founded by a fellow named Ryan Baradas about eleven years ago, and he was with another M financial firm in Phoenix by the name of Con Financial, and he decided to go out on his own and form another M financial firm. Uh, about 11 years ago. And when I joined WealthPoint, it was an M financial firm. And one of the things that I will talk about later on in our discussion this evening is the unique way in which WealthPoint discloses and negotiates compensation. And Denver, where I represented and started my affiliation with WealthPoint, had a number of M financial offices. And Fred, I know you're familiar with M financial. And M Financial is a producer group comprised of 150 of the largest life insurance producers worldwide. And the fact that we were willing to disclose and negotiate our compensation was cause for some concern to M Financial, as you might imagine. That community had had its opportunity and had run its practice nationwide and internationally without ever having to deal with the the ugly head of consumerism and we brought that to the fore in Denver. So after going back and forth for almost a year, M Financial came to Walt Point and said, well we understand what you're trying to do, educate advisors, educate consumers. Um, But not all M Financial firms choose to do business the way you do in terms of disclosure and compensation and negotiating compensation, and it's a very complicated process. And some firms believe that the way you do business could be construed as being detrimental uh, to their practice and the way they do business. So we'd like to have you stop. And we said, well, we understand that too, but it's sort of anathema to our DNA, if you will. So thank you very much, but I think we will leave M Financial and we look forward to competing with you uh, on a fully disclosed and independent basis. So we did, during the six months of that conversation with M Financial, we did a, a very thorough analysis of the other producer groups in the United States and decided to join a company called NFP, National Financial Partners. And we did an analysis of of the business we had written with M Financial uh, during the previous eight years and found that there was really no difference in the product pricing despite the M Financial's vaunted claim of proprietary product. So we were very comfortable leaving M Financial and with a realization that our products that we had Complete access to rather than the preferred uh, relationships that M Financial have to seven different companies. We could go to any company, and with our ability to disclose and negotiate compensation, we felt very, very strongly that we would be very successful as a competitor to M Financial. And then, lastly, a contributing factor to our decision was in Denver uh, in 19, uh, 2017, there were five financial firms, M Financial firms, including WealthPoint. So, if I'm an advisor like you, Brent, and a client or another advisor asks for a recommendation in the life insurance business. You know, how do I make a choice between five firms essentially offering the same suite of products and services? And so now there are four M Financial firms and WealthPoint, and we have found that we get a lot more opportunities than we ever did previously. So it's worked out very well for us and it's worked out and more importantly to the benefit of our clients.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. But I must have, it still must have been a little bit of a scary leap of faith though to jump no, it out. Was.
1: It was. It was. And it was particularly challenging for me because I had just spent the preceding year explaining to all of my centers of influence, my advisor friends, why I had chosen WealthPoint and M financial and then to have to go back a year later and say, Well, here's the rest of the story. And some some people were more supportive of that than others but at the, at the end of the day it was the right decision to make and uh, and it was made for all the right reasons sounds like it yeah it's it's worked out wonderfully so perhaps it would be helpful to start with a quick review of different types of life insurance policies that'd be a good place to start perfect yeah that'd be great okay well then let's talk about everybody's favorite type of policy a term policy and i think it's probably maybe helpful to some of our listeners to think of a term insurance policy like a non insurance policy in that you buy an amount of insurance for a specific period of time for a guaranteed premium. And if there's no claim, there's no return of cash value, uh, and the policy lapses if the premium is not paid, or the duration or term of the policy expires. Typical term durations are 10, 20, or 30 years. But interestingly, in the last month, a number of carriers have stopped writing 30-year term insurance policies. And it's not because of COVID-19 but because of the precipitous fall and the uncertainty surrounding interest rate markets. Because those policies have to be priced for a 30-year duration. And with interest rates as low as they are and as uncertain in terms of their trajectory, insurance companies just decided there's just too much risk to accept a 30-year guaranteed pricing contract in this volatile environment.
0: Is that a product of investment restrictions on the insurance company itself, that the insurance no. company can only invest in certain products?
1: No, it's not a statutory requirement. In this case, it's a financial stability decision made by the insurance companies to protect their insu- their financial viability. Um, so the considerations typically in selecting a term insurance policy vary from price, Obviously, it is probably the key focus, um, strength of the insurance carrier, and increasingly conversion rights. And what I mean by conversion rights is that if someone becomes uninsurable but has the need life or lifetime coverage, all-term policies provide the right, contractual right, to convert to an individual permanent or cash value policy. But there is a great disparity between the types of policies and the restrictions that different insurance companies assign to that conversion right. So if this is, let's say, a young person who has uh, a high likelihood of having an estate tax liability and perhaps has some medical history in the family that they want to protect against if they want to convert that policy in 20 or 30 years. And conversion is valuable because it allows the person, the insured, to convert at the same underwriting classification as they were issued when that term policy was first issued. So if I'm a young person and I have qualified for a preferred best underwriting classification, and it's now 30 years later and I have inoperable cancer, I can still convert to a permanent policy at that same preferred best underwriting classification. That is all all clear? Yeah, it makes okay. sense.
0: Yeah, it makes sense to me. Uh, that's, uh, it's a good deal, but it doesn't sound like it's a good deal across the board in equal proportion.
1: No, and it's interesting because although there, there is a vast disparity in the conversion rights, there really isn't any cost associated with that conversion right. So even if you have the very best conversion rights, you do not pay any more than the company that has the least favorable conversion rights. It's, it's a bit of an anomaly in the industry. Hmm. So um, shall we move on to whole life?
0: Let's do it. Yeah.
1: Whole life is, I think, probably a lot of our listeners and, and we all realize was sort of the historic foundation of the industry. Uh, and it's a very attractive policy type because it features a guaranteed premium and a guaranteed death benefit. And those policies have historically been written by mutual life insurance companies. An example of mutual life insurance companies would be Northwestern Mutual, New York Life, and Guardian Dimensional Couple. They're typically rather expensive, and they're expensive by the industry's own admission because of the way the policies are designed. And what I mean by that is that a mutual insurance company and a whole life policy knowingly and with disclosure overcharges for what that risk is expected to be. But it is the counterbalance to that is that over the term of the policy or over the period of the policies being enforced, the industry, especially the mutual insurance companies, have expected to be able to return that overcharge and premium via what's known as policy dividends. And policy dividends come from the fact that these are mutual insurance companies, which means that the, policy, the company is owned by the policyholders. So they have the right to return dividends or earnings off of their book of business on a tax favor basis to the policyholders. And many of those older policies were issued based on assumptions of the interest portion of the dividend formula being in the 8%, 9%, even sometimes even higher uh, interest rate. And as we've all seen firsthand, interest rates have steadily trended down for the past 25 years. So if I have a policy that was issued by one of these really fine financially for, uh, secure companies like Northwestern or, or New York Life, my premium that may have been illustrated is paying $1,000 for 10 years because the interest rate portion of that dividend has gone from 9% to 4%, may, may now be, I have to pay that $1,000 premium for 25 years. And so that's what has been the problem with mutual or whole life policies, especially in the last 25, 27 years in this in this extended ultra-low interest rate policy environment.
0: You think that, does that just, just lead to policies that essentially run out of cash value or run out of value to cover premiums for their death benefits?
1: Now, remember I said one of, the, one of the attractive things about whole life policies is that they have guaranteed premiums. What that means is that premium has to be paid every single year. So unless the dividends are sufficiently robust to pay that premium in the later years or maybe a significant contribution to those premiums in later years, the policies do either run out of money or require the policyholder to pay more premium than they had anticipated. Got it. So, um, all right. Let's move on to universal life then. Again, let me use an example because I think it's an effective way to try and explain some of these by the industry's own design, more complicated products. So a universal life policy, I think, is in its simplest form. It's a combination of a money market or an investment account, which accumulates earnings on a tax-deferred basis, and a term life insurance policy. So another way to think of it is you've got this pot of cash which to which premiums are paid, interest is credited, and from that pot of cash, the insurance company deducts mortality or risk or term charges, however you want to call them, and the policy investment a couple of policy expenses. These policies typically will stay in force as long as there's sufficient funds in that account to pay the risk and policy expense charges. And another thing that's important for people to understand is how those risk charges are calculated. And they're calculated on what the industry calls the net amount at risk, or the NAR. Let's again just use an example. Let's assume I've got a million-dollar term insurance or universal life policy. And it's got $100,000 worth of cash value in it. So the net amount at risk is the difference between that million dollars and the $100,000 of cash value. So the net amount at risk is the, the risk or the term, for the company's exposure is that $900,000. So what happens is that as cash value goes up, the net amount at risk comes down. But what also happens is as I get older, those term charges or risk charges every year become higher as I get older on a cost per thousand basis. So the objective is to draw, drive the cash value up to the point where the net amount at risk is minimal, especially during the later years. And that way the policy becomes sustainable. Now, a variant on the typical basic universal life policy is the policy the industry introduced about 15, 18 years ago, years ago called Guaranteed Universal Life, or GUL. And it was an interesting policy because for the first time in the industry, a GUL provided a really meaningful transfer of risk from the insured to the insurance company because a GUL is fully guaranteed. And by that, I mean the death benefit is guaranteed in return for the payment of a guaranteed premium for a guaranteed duration. And that death benefit is also guaranteed to remain in force to a specific age. So all components of the GUL for the first time were fully guaranteed. And those were terrific policies when they were introduced. And um, since they were introduced, let's say 18, 20 years ago, pricing on those has gone up probably 20% just because interest rates, again, have come down. Uh, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners have increased reserving requirements for those policies because they're a long-term guarantee. So they're, put, they're being uh, conservative in terms of how they fund those policies. And interestingly, because of this recent reduction in interest rates, in the last month, some GUL policies have gone up by 10 or 12% immediately just because the industry is concerned about the viability of those. Wow. Yeah. So it's, as I said, the industry is responding pretty quickly to changes in our financial environment. It's not because they're concerned about the impact that COVID-19 may have on mortality. It's much more because they're concerned about the interest rate environment.
0: Right. Right. So So we've talked- Go ahead. well I was just I was just gonna say so I guess the the expectation maybe and maybe this assumption may be wrong, but I guess the expectation then would be that those policies are only going to become more and more expensive the more the more we're in this downward interest rate trajectory for who who knows how long Well, I guess mathematically we know how long but uh, we don't know on a time horizon how long
1: Exactly. Because I don't think any of us believe interest rates are going to start increasing any time in the foreseeable future. No. So that's the only thing that is really going to help um, reduce the pricing of those sorts of contracts. I don't think life expectancy is going to improve significantly either. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. The tendency is to policies to stay at least as expensive as they are now and perhaps trend higher. So should we talk about indexed universal life? Yes, please. So indexed universal life is the industry's latest attempt to deliver an understandable, but I think relatively prudently constructed product. So we're talking about a universal life policy. So we have an investment account. And remember, we have those charges for the net amount at risk and for the policy expenses. The cash value of an indexed universal life tracks the performance of an index, whether it's the Standard & Poor's, or the Stocks, or Hang Seng, or whatever it is. And those policies typically have a collar on the performance. And a collar is, as you may know, is a securities firm, securities industry firm. But what it simply means is there is a floor on the interest crediting rate and a ceiling on the interest crediting rate. So the floor is typically zero or 1%. So even in a down market, uh, the the Standard Poor's, for instance, was down 33% uh, a month ago. Even in that market, the insurance company had placed hedges on the performance of the Standard Poor's. And so the policyholder was protected from that 33% decrease and could not fall at all because they were supported by that 0% crediting interest floor. The trade-off for that is that there is also a ceiling in most of these policies where participation to the upside of that index is limited. And typically, those have historically been in the 10 to 12 to 14% range. So if the Standard Poor's had gone up 18%, index would have been credited, or that policy, that cash value would have been credited with, if it was a 12% ceiling, 12%. And the balance of that gain, that 6% between the 12 and 18% would have accrued to the holder of the hedge. So what happens in terms of the mechanics of how these policies work is that assume we have a $1,000 premium and the insurance company is going to receive that $1,000 and they're going to go and buy $960 worth of bonds and mortgages. And that's what's going to protect and that's what's going to be reserved. They'll take the remaining $40 and and go and buy a hedge and a put or put in a call on those indexes to protect themselves. And that is a cost of the policy, the cost of that uh, that hedge. But it's a pretty straightforward and it's a pretty interesting product. And because of the defensive nature of the zero percent floor, I think makes sense in this volatile environment. Yeah. Any questions?
0: I, well, I, I was just going to say, I, I think you're right. And I think that those kinds of products, both in the, in the life insurance space and also in the deferred annuity space are going to become more and more popular, uh, at least from a sales perspective, they're going to be a lot more attractive. Maybe that's what i really meant to say my my impression was and you, you can kind of correct me if i'm wrong here kevin but my impression was during the recession or in the back on the back end of the recession that was definitely the case that people were gravitating towards products that had collars on them that would protect them against the downside risk because they had just experienced a huge downside.
1: Sure. That's absolutely true. And I think it is, it is particularly important when you're talking about elderly insurance. And the reason I say that is, if let's compare an index policy with a variable policy, and you know, jumping ahead to what a variable policy is, but just briefly a variable policy, That cash value can be invested in and moved between any number of mutual funds, mutual fund families and other investment options. But there's typically no protection to the downside. So then there's no ceiling to the upside. So they're very volatile products. But if I am... 75 years old and I have $800,000 of cash value in my million dollar policy, my net amount of risk is obviously that $200,000 between the two. If the market drops 30% and I've just lost quarter of a million dollars in my cash value, now the net amount of risk is $450,000. And it's a very good likelihood that my cash value will never recover to the point where it will be self-sufficient anymore. And I'll have to put an additional premium into that policy in order to keep it in force for balance of my life. Right. So leverage, as we know, is a double-edged sword. But that's why I think <laughs> an index policy is, is a good middle ground. Yeah. Um, so what should, what should we talk about next? And I don't mean to monopolize the conversation and i hope I'm not getting too deeply into the weeds for everybody.
0: Well, I, I had sort of a general question as, you know, let's say just as between, and maybe this could be expanded a little bit, but as between say a variable and a unit and a universal policy, you know, what, what sorts of factors do you take into account to figure out like which one of these is the right fit for a particular client?
1: I think it really depends on a number of factors. We've talked about age, we've talked about what the policy is gonna be used for, um, what the risk profile of the insured and or the trustee of uh, or the beneficiaries of the trust or policy, I think should all be taken into consideration. A universal, like the basic universal life policy, that cash value receives the benefit of is invested in the typical insurance company portfolio of bonds, mortgages, and a very, very small degree of equities. So it's a pretty conservative, but uh, not a particularly high yielding. Uh, investment vehicle, which of course restricts the amount of crediting it gets. If you have a sophisticated trustee or a sophisticated insured that is comfortable with risk and they have access to someone who will manage those investment choices in the variable policies, then I think that might be a good fit. And for the very wealthy, that has historically been where they have put the majority of their premium. But I think There are now policies out there that allow a portion of the policy cash values to be invested in variable products or even like some policies uh, will allow alternative investments. Um, But a portion of it can also be in an index. So I think it is a question of if there's a family office or a financial advisor who is comfortable with advising the insured or the trustee on the the risks and rewards of the policy design and manages it. I think um, you can be reflective of the the risk tolerance of the insured or the trustees and uh, and participate to the upside. But I think it's probably a changing strategy, you know, year to year, month to month, as everybody's, I think, investment strategy should be. Yeah. Did that answer yeah. your question, Brent? Yeah, no,
0: it did. That's interesting. Cause it sounds like with, especially with the variable products that they're probably better yeah. suited for people who either themselves or through advisors are fairly hands-on with they're investing.
1: Absolutely. These are sophisticated products, uh, and they're very flexible, which is an attractive portion, an attractive part of the policy, but you need to be, be engaged and not just uh, set it and forget it. Uh, should we talk about taxation? Everybody's favorite subject. Is that, is that, is that yes? <laughs> okay. But any, any other conversations, questions, concerns about different policy types?
2: Yeah, Kevin, I wanted to just kind of follow up on like Brent's last question, you know, you were talking about the different factors, you know, what all of those same factors kind of play in, into, you know, when you're looking and evaluating a policy for a client, would that kind of go into when you're looking at term versus a whole life as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think we always have to take what the policy is designed to do and the duration of that need whenever, before we make any recommendation in terms of it type of policy.
0: Yeah. It's not a decision to be made in a vacuum. It's a decision to be made after doing due diligence and collecting all the facts.
1: Right. Absolutely. Just as... In the, in the stock business, and the financial services business, you know, their credo is to know your investor, know your client and what the risk portfolio is. And I think we have that same obligation to our clients in the life insurance business um, to know what their risk tolerance is, what the objective for the policy is, um, the duration, the expectations of all parties involved. Absolutely. And, and we can't do a good job unless we know that anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, let's uh let's ruin this conversation and talk about taxes.
1: Perfect. Perfect. What a good segue. To the taxation <laughs> of life insurance, which is completely unique. It's really why, it's really the only reason that life insurance makes economic sense. And I like to refer to the unique tax treatment as the unique tax arbitrage opportunities inherent in a life insurance contract. And this is especially important in the estate tax planning application of life insurance. So let me take a moment to explain. And again, I think I'll reduce to a story or an analogy. Let's take an example. We've got a married couple. Let's assume they're 865. They have a taxable estate, and they're considering buying a million dollars of survivorship universal life coverage. Uh, and the death benefit, a uh, million dollars, and the premium is going to be a single premium of $100,000. So $100,000 premium, $1 million dollars of survivorship coverage. And just to explain survivorship, survivorship is a joint life insurance policy that insures both a husband and wife and pays the death benefit at the death of the surviving spouse. And the reason a policy is designed that way is for two reasons. That is when the estate tax is due and payable. And actuarially, by insuring two lives, it allows the insurance company to reduce the cost of that policy significantly. So the internal rate of return on that policy is going to be greater than typically a single life policy on either the husband or the wife. Is that helpful? Okay. Yes. Yep. So we're going to take this transaction step by step in which tax opportunity we're going to take advantage of. So again, we've got a taxable estate, the premium's $100,000. So we're going to take that $100,000 out of the taxable estate. Now that's analogous to paying interest on your mortgage. You pay the interest, but Uncle Sam allows you to deduct that interest that you pay on your mortgage from your income, taxable income. So you're going to pay the $100,000 in premium, but Uncle Sam will allow you to deduct that $100,000 from the taxable estate. So that's the first arbitrage opportunity. And if we're in a taxable estate, we know the taxable estate bracket starts at 40%. So there's a 40% subsidy. Now, another thing that's unique about life insurance is the income tax treatment of the death benefit. As we all know, typically ordinary income tax rates apply to gains on either long-term capital gain or ordinary income. And ordinary income is typically or long-term capital gain is typically the gain between the basis in the investment and the sale price. But in this case, there never is any, well, there is never any income tax due on the gain between the amount of premiums paid and the death benefit. So again, we're going to assume that this this couple is in a 40% income tax bracket. Obviously, it could be dependent upon state local taxes. It could be a lot higher than that. But we're just going to say 40%. So that is our second tax savings. Thirdly, when life insurance is owned by an entity other than the insureds, it is outside of their estate for estate tax purposes. And it is you both know so well, you know, whether the strategy is a family partnership or an insurance trust or the children or whomever, so long as that premium, the, the insurance have no what we call incidence of ownership in that policy, the death benefits are received outside of the insurance estate completely free of estate taxes. So there's another 40% savings. And then lastly, if the owner and beneficiary of this policy is a generation-skip strategy, that gain can be deferred for multiple generations. And so it is truly, that's, that's the heart or the genesis of the strategy known as a dynasty trust, because those trusts and the, and the assets in them can avoid estate taxes for many, many, many years and build up and compound free of state taxes for an extraordinarily long period of time. That's where real wealth is, is really created. It's compound interest, as we all know. And interestingly, the biggest problem the very wealthy have, the ultra-wealthy, and I mean those people worth in excess of 100 million, 200, 500 million dollars, is they cannot buy enough life insurance because they really understand the power of it. And when, and I think Brent, you and I had talked about this, you know, when someone asks me, you know, what makes an ideal client? I say, well, I think it's somebody who either loves someone or owes someone. So if they owe someone, they wanna pay off the debt, at their death. If they love someone, perhaps they want to make sure that they're taken care of financially. And so that's the first requisite. The second requisite is someone who's willing to understand how a life insurance policy works. Because remember, I started our conversation with saying it has the industry has a well deserved bad reputation. And that's because people don't understand, and the industry makes it very difficult for them to understand how a policy works. Our job at WealthPoint, I think, are one of our primary objectives. Is to peel back that onion, you know, pull back that veil, and let people understand how a policy works. And when they do, they typically don't. The sale leaves the equation, and people would really understand why it's powerful and they want to buy it. They don't have to be
0: sold. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. To purchase a life insurance policy is really a financial decision. And so it should be driven by financial factors and economic factors more than anything else. So once you understand the way the policy works and the mechanisms behind it and the way that the economics and the tax rules work, then you're fully informed and able to actually make a good decision about this financial transaction that you're engaging in and that, and to, to your point, that's probably one of my biggest frustrations with the industry, at least observationally is that not across the board, but there are sectors of the industry that don't do a a good enough job of explaining the transaction where I feel like uh, clients are making these financial decisions without having all the facts in front of them and understanding the facts.
1: Absolutely. And as as I alluded to earlier, the fact that we will disclose and negotiate compensation is part and parcel of what we do because the compensation has such a direct impact on the performance of the policy long-term. It is the single largest expense in any life insurance policy during the first 10 years of the policy's life. So, Part of our ethos is to make sure that our clients understand how the policy works, what our blending or uh, negotiating of that compensation enhances the internal rate of return on those policies, those investments. And on on the subject of internal rates of return, I just wanted to touch briefly on how the tax arbitrage opportunity impacts the internal rates of return at those three level or those four transaction levels we just talked about. So if we assume, and it's, it's certainly possible to get a 7% internal rate of return uh, on a survivorship life insurance policy to life expectancy, if they're not subject, if that death benefit is not subject to income taxes, that increases the internal rate of return to nearly 12%. If it's not subject to estate taxes, it improves the internal rate of return to nearly 20%. And if it's outside uh, in a generation-stiffing strategy, you know, it obviously depends on the length of the terms of the trust, but it's not unusual to see a 20 or 25 30% internal rate of return policy performance. So it really is pretty extraordinary. So let me just think, let's see if I can summarize this, we're going to go back to our same couple, but we're just going to present this story in a slightly different way. So remember, we've got 65-year-old couple, taxable estate, million dollars in insurance, and $100,000 premium. So in the simplest terms, this $100,000 is money they're never going to spend in their lifetime. It's not going to impact their standard of living, because I don't think any of us feel that anybody should buy should compromise their standard of living to pay life insurance premiums. And they're not going to need that $100,000 during their lifetime. So at death, if they decide not to buy the insurance and just leave it in their estate, after estate taxes, their heirs are going to get $40,000 out of that $100,000 premium. If they decide to buy the insurance, their heirs are going to get a million dollars. So it's $40,000 or a million. I mean, obviously that is a gross oversimplification, but that is in essence why... Buying life insurance to help pay estate taxes makes sense.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of leveraging that can happen.
1: Yeah, there really is, and these are 65 year old people, so this is not uh, not an unusual scenario. You know, their kids are you know typically in their 40s by then, so this is this is this is a real life scenario.
2: You know, it's important to note too. You know, you mentioned you know the proceeds from the life insurance policies go to the beneficiaries tax free. And you know, as the attorney, I have to. Yeah, I love exceptions. So I have to always oh, put an yeah. exception in here. Um,
0: <laughs> Ruin so, it for the rest of us, huh?
2: I I, I know. We just we have, we love exceptions, right? So, you know, of course, that's, that's the general rule. You know, the one, one big exception to that general rule is the transfer for value rule, which is when uh, a beneficiary of a life insurance policy transfers that policy, you know, to a third party for valuable consideration, then that policy will lose its tax-exempt status. And then that purchaser is now going to have to pay the income tax. On that death benefit of that million dollar policy and you know like you said they you know the purchaser will still get that tax deferred growth so that's still a great advantage to the policy but they are going to lose that one benefit there um and then of course you know as attorneys again there's exceptions to the exceptions even <laughs> not sure
1: what those exceptions to the transfer for value rules are Exactly. you're going to tell us right
2: uh that is a conversation for another day um we could probably talk about all of the exceptions to that exception in a, multiple <laughs> podcasts uh, right. so we won't get into that one at least today yeah
0: that's a that's a black hole no, let me give true. you let me give you one more exception since we're on the topic of exceptions thank you Rachel <laughs> so let me give you one more exception and that is if if you have a paid up policy and the amount of premiums that have been paid are more than what would be needed to be paid on seven level premium payments of course. No human being calculates this on their own. The insurance company tells you. But if that's the case, then you have what's called a modified endowment contract, and the modified endowment contracts will maintain the ability to to have income tax-free growth within the policy, and they will maintain the ability to have income tax-free death benefits when the insured passes away. But what happens is if you, say, you reach in and you take out the cash value of the policy, then instead of being treated like a normal life insurance contract where taking the money out isn't necessarily a taxable event. They will treat it like a deferred annuity and the deferred annuities rules say, when you take money out of the deferred annuity, you know, like the account or the cash value of the deferred annuity, you're treated as if you took out the, inve- the investment growth and the policy first, and then you pay tax at your highest ordinary income tax rate on that investment growth. So it comes out right off the top. So these modified endowment contracts, they're kind of penalizing people who pay up these policies. And at least in that kind of narrow set of circumstances where if you actually then reach in and you try to access the cash value later, you're going to have to pay income tax on the growth that's in, within the policy, even though the policy got to grow tax-free and got to grow on a deferred tax basis. So they're not necessarily bad and it's not like necessarily a mistake to have one. And it's I think it's fairly common for very, very wealthy people like Kevin was talking about to, to buy these big policies because they're looking to put their money somewhere where they can get tax-free growth which once you get into ultra high net worth circles, that's very difficult to find, except in, basically except in the uh, life insurance arena, maybe somewhat in the opportunity zone arena now, but basically in the life insurance arena, that's where those folks can find tax-free deferred growth, they may be motivated to to pay up a policy, even though it would turn it into a modified endowment contract, and be subject to these rules if they ever access the cash value, because they can't get that kind of tax treatment anywhere else anyways. And they're going to win on the tax arbitrage that Kevin is talking about.
1: Right. And, and a practice that has become quite popular in the last five to seven years is selling life insurance policies to highly compensated entrepreneurs, sole practitioners, executives, as a source of additional tax-favored income during retirement. Because as the two of you know, the unique f- features of a life insurance policy are that you can withdraw to basis, which means you can with- you can take all the premiums you've paid out with no income tax liability, so long as it's not an MEC or a MAC, as you said, Brent. And then you can borrow additional cash values, which is the interest earned or the compound growth of the cash values. You can borrow that at typically a very favorable interest rate, perhaps 25 basis points. And that is also non-taxable. So you can have this policy that is very tax-rich, excuse me, cash-rich, you can withdraw all your premiums, then you can withdraw almost all of your earnings, and none of that is ever taxable, and it is all forgiven when the policy matures at death. But there are two gotchas in that situation, as as you well know. The one is, if the policy becomes an MEC, all the, all the income that you pulled out of it now becomes taxable, down to basis, and If you pull too much money out of the policy and the policy lapses, you're going to get a 1099 from the insurance company for all the money that you pulled out of it in excess of basis. So, yeah, there are notable exceptions and one needs to be very careful.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, how do you see, maybe taking a a step or two back and looking more at the the broad picture of someone's um, financial investments, how, how do you see life insurance fitting into that tapestry? You know, where does it fit as a class in that tapestry?
1: That's a great question. And it is a subject that the industry has tried to address and present in the most favorable light for many years. Uh, life insurance as an investment class. And I think that it, it should be viewed that way for a couple of reasons. One is typically you can design the policy so that the benefit is guaranteed. It's typically or should be designed so that it's non-correlated to other investments in the portfolio of the insured. Uh, It's a diversification. And lastly, and again on our favorite subject, it has vastly more attractive tax treatment than almost any other investment vehicle in the investment spectrum. So even before COVID-19 and the $4 trillion the United States government is expected to spend... Uh, trying to address those concerns. We, as we all know, have been looking at a trillion dollar deficit for the last four or five years and as far into the future as we we dared to look. Now our deficit for 2020 alone could reach in excess of six trillion dollars. So taxes are headed up way up and way sooner than we ever would have thought. And there's only one source for that, and that's taxes. So enough said. The life insurance, the tax stream of life insurance allows it to be really viewed as a completely distinct asset class. And and it's a unique product because it can be used for such disparate purposes. Uh, It can be used as a hedge for investment tail risk, um, for a tax deductible and leveraged charitable bequest, uh, to replenish and protect family foundations or funds from. Both investment risk and growing demands from ever increasing number of dependents as families grow through generations. Uh, It's a great tool to equalize the division of an estate. Say one, one heir, one child has been running the business and the parents think that that child has earned the right to have that business. But then that might be a significant asset. And so how do they equalize their generosity with the siblings? Or there is a legacy asset that one sibling wants and the others don't, so it's it's just very flexible to do those sorts of things. Uh, It's important to remember that life insurance will always be quote in the money, and we also have to remember that life insurance does not protect uh, from an if event. It's a win event, and I think people get lost in that. They forget thinking about the fact that that's why it's always in the money because it's a win event. Uh, And lastly. we think it should be viewed as an investment in both family and human capital. As we've all seen, human capital is often the result of some extraordinary effort or benefit attributable to one particular person. And so it's natural to think of it as not just capital, but human capital. And uh, those people and those opportunities present themselves rarely. And so I think it's only prudent to try and replicate that human capital where possible. Yeah, well stated. <laughs> well, no, I mean, obviously, we have a little passion. We have a lot of passion. Uh, this industry, and uh, we just want to tell the tell the right story and the honest story. And you know, that's a that's a great segue into WealthPoint. I've touched on it before. Uh, in that WealthPoint is unique in the industry because we disclose and negotiate our compensation just from a very high level. I just want to explain how we do that. Uh, we design policies so that the base policy is a fully commissionable, you know, whether it's a universal or a whole life or with some variant on a universal life policy and then we attach to that a completely non commissionable uh, no load term insurance policy um, which is tied to the underlying base policy and remain is guaranteed to remain in force for as long as the base policy uh, is in force and By doing that, we can drive the commission down or you know, the overall premium down, not just the commission. We can drive the commission down by 80%. But what that does is it drives the premium cost down by 30 or 40% without compromising the stability of financial viability of the policies. And so that really makes a compelling argument to, to consider life insurance in all of the situations we just discussed. And we're unique unique about it uh, how we do that.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's great that you do. And I think it's Number one, because I think people ought to know all the facts, like I was saying, and I think it's a great fact to know. And you know the the, the reality that Wealthpoint is willing to essentially take a little bit of a haircut on their own fees and at the same time make the policy cheaper for the clients means that the client is getting a better return on the investment in this policy than they would have gotten otherwise, even if you were comparing this policy to another policy at another agency that wasn't doing the same thing on their fees like for like. And I think that's a huge benefit. And you guys uh obviously you lean into that as a as a marketing tool, but rightly so. I, I think you're you're in the right for doing it.
1: Well thank you. But I think it's also important for people to understand we're we are a for profit business. We're not <laughs> a five C three organization. Yeah. And Quite frankly, it is in our best interest to sell policies that way, because if we step back for a moment and we look at the delivery system in the life insurance industry for the last 100 years in the United States, if I'm in the life insurance business and I want to sell a large policy to someone who probably has an estate tax liability, I'll identify who that person is, uh, arrange to somehow meet that person, ingratiate myself to that person, you know, support you interest, interests golfing social events whatsoever in the hope that at some point i'm going to be able to ask that person whether they'd like to consider life insurance as an estate plan solution and industry-wide the success rate in that strategy is about one in ten but if i'm talking to somebody like the two of you and i'm explaining what we just talked about and you can introduce me to the right client at just the right time our conversion ratio over the past five years has run in the 80% range. So we're converting eight out of 10 conversations. We don't need to get every last dollar out of every last transaction because our, our flow of business is much more consistent, much more predictable, predict, uh, predictable, and as a result, our business is much more profitable than most of our competitors.
0: Yeah. So that's, that's the right great. Way. Well, uh, where can people find you? You're, you're on the web is it wealthpoint.com is that the point.net.net right. right and all, all your contact particulars are there
1: they are they are and uh, i would urge everybody to look at the wealthpoint uh, website look around um obviously you two have know how to find me all hours of the day all yeah. days etc um But I would welcome the opportunity. Hopefully, this may engender a few questions from your clients and friends, and I welcome the opportunity to address them. Now, I sincerely appreciate your opportunity by providing this forum.
0: Well, we appreciate you
1: very much. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you both. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Goodbye. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Take care. Yes. See you. Bye-bye.
0: If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, WealthandLaw.com. See you there.